So what makes uh, something worth it? And businesses will often use something called uh, a cost-benefit analysis when they're making business deci decisions. And, and one website described a cost-benefit analysis like this. It said a cost-benefit analysis is a process businesses use to analyze decisions. The business or analyst sums the benefits of a situation or action and then subtracts the cost associated with taking that action. And without thinking about it, we naturally do cost-benefit uh, analyses all the time in our lives with many of the decisions we do. And we might think of it in terms of uh, making a pros and cons list. Like, do the pros outweigh the cons in this decision? Uh, and, or what is the pros or the cons of doing this or, or buying this thing? Are uh, there more pros than cons? And we consider what we will gain uh, in comparison to the cost of whatever it is we're buying, whatever it is we're doing. And so we are trying to answer the question, is it worth it? Is this worth the cost? Is this worth the price I'm going to pay for it? And businesses will also factor in what's called the opportunity cost uh, when making a decision. And this considers the alternative benefits uh, that could be had if they weren't making this decision or buying this thing. So. Uh, in other words, the opportunity cost looks at what you're saying no to in order to say yes to this thing. Well, if we say yes to this business venture, make this decision, what are all the things we're saying no to? That's the opportunity cost. They want to make sure that the decision they're making uh, has the most benefit compared to any other decisions or any other things they could buy. And we use this in our decision making as well, because if you say yes to uh, buying that car, new car, you are saying no to having a vacation, or maybe vice versa. Or if you say yes to going out for dinner, then you're saying no to going to the movies. If, you're, if you order the burger, you're saying no to the steak. And so we're asking, is what you're saying yes to more valuable than what you're saying no to? Is this worth it that I'm missing these other opportunities? And today we're beginning this series in the Gospel according to Luke, like I said, uh, and you can see the title up there, Luke, uh, To Seek and Save, and we'll get a little bit more uh, into that, what that means uh, next week. Um, but this series is going to give us an up-close picture of who Jesus is, and an inside look into his teachings and what it means to be a disciple of his, what does it mean to follow him. And leading up to Christmas, we already covered chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, and today we're just going to back up and go to uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and Similar to what you find on the outside of a book, I brought a couple of books here. Uh, Dwayne will recognize this one. Dwayne's name is actually in this book. You know, fun fact, I brought it just for you, Dwayne. Uh, but when you open up a book, uh, they often have, you'll have your title, you'll often have a subtitle, and you have your authors. And then oftentimes on the back, or this one, like on the cover of it, you'll have some, some little quotes about it, like what people are saying about the book. Ooh, this is great. Uh, this is, you know, we love this book. You know, this is going to be, you know, life-changing for you. And it has like a little, some paragraphs that kind of describe what the book is about. And then oftentimes there's a, a little uh, kind of biography about the author. And that's what we see uh, in on our books today. And, and these uh, these things give us a sense of what's this book about? Uh, is it credible? What's the, you know, is, is the author, where is he writing from? Oh, he went to this university, he's done this. Oh, he's credible. And then you have people giving quotes that are, saying, oh, this book is great, and so all this is to make us want to read it. And so similar to what you find on the outside of the book, Luke's uh, opening sentence is four verses long in chapter one, and it gives us a preview of what he's writing about. It establishes his credibility, and it tells us his purpose for writing. And Luke says he writes that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. They've been taught about Jesus, but why would they need certainty about them? Why is he writing for that purpose? 
Well, it wasn't easy to be a follower of Jesus in the first century. It went against, you know, if you imagine there's kind of a, a current in, in an ocean, like a current in an ocean, there's like a, a current that is, you can swim with that current in our world, in our culture, like this is the way culture is going, this is the way society is going, this is the way the world is going. You can swim with that or you can swim against it. And for to be a follower of Jesus in the first century, people were swimming against that current. It's like they stood out. It's like they're going the wrong way uh, when everyone else is going the other way. And whether you were Jewish or a non-Jewish Gentile, there was a cost to following Jesus. And so the question would be, is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth the cost? Jesus told people very specifically in Luke, uh, this gospel, to count the cost before following me. There's a cost to this. Count the cost. And Luke writes to people who have become followers of Jesus by hearing uh, the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the gospel, from Jesus' first followers and from other people uh, who have spread that message. But when you experience resistance and challenges, hostility, rejection, persecution to what you believe, is it worth it? What would make it worth it? And Luke writes to strengthen believers uh, struggling with this and asking this. And we may have the same struggle. We may ask, is this really worth it? When we do the cost-benefit analysis, do the benefits outweigh the costs uh, when we're following Jesus? When we do the opportunity costs, are we willing to say no to the things we have to say no to in order to say yes to Jesus? Like, okay, I'm going to miss out on these things, but it's worth it. Do we gladly give up what Jesus asks us to leave behind in order to say yes to him? And there's a lot of talk, you know, vaccines are all the rage right now. I don't know, you know, everyone's doing it, so... Uh, vaccines are what everyone's talking about, and uh, I hope that this first message uh, can be uh, almost like a vaccine. You know, vaccines administer a weakened form or a part of a form of a virus in order to for your body to have strength to fight it when you encounter that virus uh, in its full strength later on out in you know out in the wild, if you want to think of it that way. And today, I hope that I'm going to introduce you to some reasons that people don't trust the Bible. And so you may be strengthening your faith so you don't have the, the sickness of doubt later. It's kind of like, let's talk about what would make you doubt now in this safe environment so that later if you encounter it out in the world or uh, have, you know, on TV or a friend or something, it's like, well, I've already been vaccinated for this. I've already gotten it in a safe place. We've talked about it. And so, like, that's not going to cause my faith, uh, me to lose my certainty. And we'll look over these four verses, Luke 1, 1 through 4, by asking four questions. Who is Luke? What did Luke write? To whom did he write and why did he write? Who is Luke? What did Luke write? To whom did he write and why? So it's kind of like who, what, to whom, and why. So let's start with the first question, who is Luke? And so here's some Bible trivia for you. Luke is the only gospel author to write a sequel. You know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke is the only one to write a sequel. He wrote uh, the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And the gospel according to Luke, uh, we start off in Jesus' birth. It quickly zooms forward to his adult ministry when he's about 30, and then it goes through his life and his death and his resurrection. And then the, God, and then the, the book of Acts begins uh, right after that. Jesus is resurrected, and it goes from his ascension, and then it uh, 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 tracks the, the early church history. And so if we didn't have Luke, if we didn't have the book of Acts, we would know far less about the early church. But he wrote a history of the early church. And here's another piece of Bible trivia. Uh, Luke wrote more than any other New Testament author. And who, maybe you would have guessed, like, who wrote the most in the Bible? We probably would say, Paul. You know, Paul wrote 13 letters. Uh, in the, so he has the most books in the New Testament. But in terms of word count, 
Paul's words are 23% of the New Testament, and Luke's words are 27% of the New Testament. And so Luke wrote the most of the New Testament, uh, not the most of anyone in the New Testament. So who is this guy who wrote almost a third of the New Testament? Luke doesn't name himself as the author of his Gospel or Acts, but from the early days of the church, he's been uh, credited as the one who was the one who authored this. He's been identified as the author. And for a while, Luke was a traveling companion and co-worker of the Apostle Paul. You see this in the book of Acts when he starts saying, we went here and we went there, when it switches from narrator to participant. And Paul mentions Luke in several of his letters. In, uh, in, in Colossians 4.14, Paul calls him the beloved physician, which is why many people think that Luke was a doctor by trade. That was what he did, and then he got swept up into this Jesus movement and was started to uh, minister with the apostles and other disciples. And in Colossians, we also discover that Luke was probably a Gentile. He wasn't uh, Jewish, and so he's this Gentile, non-Jewish guy who is a doctor by trade, and he starts traveling around with the Apostle Paul and doing these missionary journeys with him. And this brings us to our second question. What did Luke write? What did he write? And this question is the longest one to answer because that's mostly what these four verses are concerned with. So Luke begins in verse 1 by telling us that there's others who've compiled narratives like his. He writes in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, and that's where, he's, and then it goes on. But that's where it stops. So, who are these other people compiling narratives, and where are these narratives? Do, do we have them? First, this could be referring to written narratives. Uh, it's it's believed that uh, the Gospel according to Mark um, was the first one written. It was written probably in the mid 50s to late 50s. So that was about 25 years after Jesus' death. Jesus died about 30 A.D. And so, Mark if it was written in 55 or 56 or whatever. That's 25 years. And so uh, Luke is usually thought to be written in the 60s or the 70s uh, A.D., and so just a little bit after Mark. Um, so written narratives, it could have been the Gospel according to Mark that he's talking about here. Like, oh, they've written stuff down. But second, these could also be referring to oral narratives that were never written down but were memorized to be passed down and taught to other people. And this was one of the main ways the story of Jesus, uh, the Gospel, uh, was taught and spread people would retell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from memory. And to our culture, we might be like, really? Like, you're going to remember uh, that whole story and tell it from memory? That sounds like really impossible and sounds really inaccurate. Like, it needs to be written down because that's what counts. Uh, for us, we have all the information we want, you know, just at the tip of our in our pocket. So it's like, why would I remember anything? I don't even have to remember where I need to drive to get this morning. Like, I can just type it in. I don't even have to remember memorize directions. So for us, like, we are not a big memorizing culture. Um, so we, we wonder, how would, could anyone memorize an account of Jesus' life uh, the size of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John in the Bible? But we have to put ourselves in, in the first century. Jesus was a Jew, and his disciples were Jews, and Jews had an oral culture, in, of you know speaking, not writing things down. I mean, they wrote tons down too. We see that in the Old Testament. Uh, but they had an oral culture in which memorization was very important. Uh, rabbis would memorize most, if not all, of the Old Testament. And if you want kind of like a page comparison, uh, that's 803 pages in the Black Bibles there, and Luke is just 30 pages in those Bibles. So it's like, well, that's kind of like uh, not a big problem for somebody who's been trained in this memorizing. 
And there are Orthodox Jews today who do the same thing. They memorize the whole first five books of the Bible or the whole Old Testament. And memorization in Jewish culture was a key part of learning. And other cultures in the world today do do the same thing. They transmit their important history and stories and traditions orally by word of mouth. There's somebody in the community that's trained like this is somebody who's going to pass on these traditions, and then they'll train up somebody else to pass those on, it's not written down. In the early church, there were people specially designated for passing on the story of Jesus. First it was the apostles, and then later on, they're called, there's people called teachers. That's what the teachers in the Bible did. It's often how I see my role. I'm not memorizing it, but I'm supposed to faithfully pass on uh, the Jesus story to you. Um, not from memory, but we're using the written word. And so these people's job was to tell the st- Jesus story faithfully, and if you think about, you know, what are some examples we might have? You know, think about comedians. They stand on a stage for an hour with memorized content, and they just, you know, tell a joke after joke after joke, and it's like these little chunks of jokes, and they just transition from one to the other. So that's an hour, an you know, example of somebody for an hour memorizing something. And there's also this guy uh, named Max McLean who puts on a play in theaters where he uh, performs the entire gospel according to Mark. It's just him on a stage with a few props, and then there's like a light on him, there's some like sound effects, but it's just him reciting the gospel according to Mark from memory, and he just kind of like, you know, acts it out by himself. And so we can see memorizing a lot of content and retelling it faithfully is possible, even even today. But we still need to answer, okay, sure, well, but what are these narratives about? Luke says others have compiled a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. And the word fulfilled tells us that this story doesn't start in the first century. It wasn't like Jesus was starting something brand new. But he is fulfilling something that was uh, predicted or expected and uh, anticipated um, before him. Jesus is filling what was promised and predicted beforehand in the Old Testament. And he fulfills the Old Testament story. He's the climax of it. And that's why three-quarters of our Bibles, you might be like, why are three-quarters of our Bibles? Maybe you never thought about it, but why is three-quarters of our Bibles... The Old Testament, not talking about Jesus, is because the Old Testament is the story uh, that Jesus was fulfilling. He's the fulfillment of that. And perhaps you've heard people, or maybe you've referred to yourself, thinking about, you know, the Bible is my instruction manual for life. And there's this acronym using the word Bible, B-I-B-L-E, so it's Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Anybody ever heard that acronym? So it's like, this is my instruction manual. This is like, tells me how to live, this gives me the rules and the stuff to do, and of course there's rules and commandments and instructs us on how to live, but Luke says he's writing not to tell us right of exactly, this is how you're supposed to live, this is an instruction manual, he says this is about what's been fulfilled, this is about something that's been accomplished, and so this tells us that the story about Jesus is not good advice, uh, but good news, that's when you're fulfilling something, that's an event has happened, and now there's good news about that event, and it's not just, you know, here's some good advice uh, about how you should live. It's, no, God has done something. Jesus has done something in history. And now this is about what's been fulfilled. Jesus has fulfilled something. And the question is whether we're going to reorient our lives around what has happened or not. Okay, so others have compiled narratives of what's been fulfilled. But where did they get their information? How did they compile these narratives? How did they write stuff down? So verse 2 says this, Uh, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of of the word that delivered them to us. So these written accounts or oral accounts are based on the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses 
and ministers or, or servants. It's another way that could be translated. These are eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. So it's just as the eyewitnesses delivered their testimony of what has been co- accomplished. So these compilers wrote them down. That's their source material. Their source material is eyewitnesses and people who are ministers of the, of the word from the beginning. And so who are these eyewitnesses and ministers of the word? These were the twelve disciples, or apostles, Jesus calls them. In Acts 1, when the disciples were trying to find a replacement for Judas, remember, he betrayed Jesus, and then he, in, and then he hung himself in despair and shame. And they're trying to find a replacement for Judas, so uh, Peter lists the job qualifications. Here's the job qualifications of an apostle if you want to replace Judas. It's someone who is with them the entire time Jesus was doing his ministry, from his baptism by John in the Jordan River, up until the day he ascended into heaven. So it's like a three-year period. So you had to be here from the beginning of that to the end of that. That's what makes you a witness. And he says that's what qualifies someone as an authoritative witness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It wasn't just like, you know, we like you, Harry, and so why don't you be an apostle? It's like, no, here's the specific qualifications. And it's these eyewitnesses and servants of the word or gospel that have provided the material for compiling Jesus' life. But perhaps you've heard about other, I'll put in quotes, Gospels that have been discovered. There's ones called the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Judas. And some will ask, why aren't these included in the Bible? Why don't they get the stamp of divine authority on them? Why is it that these four are the only ones? Why not these other ones? We have so much more variety, you know, different... Of pictures and ideas of Jesus from these other ones. They would just enrich our, our spiritual life. Well, first of all, these weren't written by those people because by the time these Gospels were written, those people were all dead. Mary and Judas and Peter, like they couldn't have written these because they're all dead. Second, these books weren't written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' entire ministry. And some will say uh, that the church chose the books that lined up with their beliefs and then they just kind of pushed aside all the ones that didn't line up with their beliefs. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we like you. You line up with our beliefs. You know, so for all of us were like, let's pick some books out that we want to put together as like, you know, our church library or something. It's like we would pick books that line up with our beliefs and then uh, these ones don't fit. And so is that what happened here? We got 27 books in the New Testament where they're like, you know, we're just going to pick these 27 and that's going to be our library. And Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, man, eh, you guys are going to get pushed to the side. That's what a lot of people will say. And so this, this, a view like this uh, was made popular uh, in the Da Vinci Code book and movie. If you ever read that or heard about it or, or saw the movie. Uh, but the reality is that the early church did not choose which books would be in the Bible and which ones would have authority, but they recognized which ones had authority by their very nature. It was not them saying, like, we're going to give this one authority and this one authority and this one authority, but it's like we're recognizing which ones have authority, and that is why those are in the Bible. Jesus commissioned his 12 apostles to be his authoritative witnesses. So it's their testimony that has credibility and weight. And for a book to be recognized as authoritative and be included in the Bible, it had to be either written by an apostle or a close companion or associate of an apostle. And so when we look at our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels we have each pass this criteria. Matthew was written by one of Jesus' apostles, uh, Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. Mark uh, traveled with Peter, uh, one of the apostles, and so Mark was a close companion of an apostle. 
John was one of Jesus' original 12 apostles. And then Luke was a close associate of Paul, who was commissioned by the risen Jesus as an apostle. And then Luke went back to the eyewitnesses and the apostles to write his gospel. All four of our gospels in our Bible are based on eyewitness testimony. when all written in the first century. Mark in the 50s, Matthew and Luke in the 60s or 70s, and then John in the 80s. So sometimes people will say, uh, okay, the stories about Jesus um, were changed and embellished over time as they passed from person to person. And since the Gospels were written 25 and f- or 50, between 25 and 50 years after the, the events, uh, they can't be accurate. And so maybe you've heard of the game uh, Telephone, or I think a lot of us have played Telephone Pictionary with uh, one another. Uh, I remember doing it in school when I was like, I don't know, third or fourth grade, playing a game of telephone. But people, the game of telephone, people get in a circle, and then first person picks, okay, this is the sentence I'm going to pass on, you know. I don't know. The Packers should be in the Super Bowl. So then if we pass that around the room, you might have somebody that, like, mishears it or might have somebody who's like, "Uh, I don't like the Packers, so they're going to change it for their own. Like, the, the Packers are... You know, shouldn't be in the Super Bowl. So it's like, oh, I said should, but now they've added two little uh, letters. Shouldn't. The Packers shouldn't be in the Super Bowl. And so it gets back around to the original person. It's like, okay, uh, they whispered in your ear, and it's like, or the last person or something says, here's what I heard. And then the first person says, here's what I said. And then you compare those, and inevitably uh, it's been changed, and it's often you know, funny. And so it's like, okay, the game of telephone, is that what happened with Jesus' story? Did it start off that uh, people... Um, knew it, and but then over time it just yeah, it just got passed on, and then Jesus got more and more grand, and eventually became divine, and wow, he's doing miracles, and like look, he was resurrected, and like eventually it just becomes this huge big uh, story. And what's more, people will add uh, that we do not have the original document that Luke wrote, which is true. There's no like the original gospel according to Luke preserved in a museum somewhere. We do not have that document. What we have are copies of it. And the early church saw these gospel accounts as so important that they made copies of them and gave them to other people and passed them around to spread. But inevitably, there would be some differences between the copies. You know, I don't know if any of you have copied uh, like dictionary pages when you were in uh, middle school or something. I had to do that because I was kind of rambunctious. But yeah. so, but inevitably, if you would check, I would be looking at the dictionary page. And I'd be copying it, but if you checked in the end, you'd be like, oh, well, you kind of missed a letter here, you missed a word here, so those, that copy would be different. And so some people will say, we don't even have the originals, so how can we know what they actually said? Maybe the originals accurately told Jesus' life, but we don't have those. They've been messed up over time. And so I've got this little whiteboard that accurately depicts our situation that we have. We have... Uh, the events, what happened, this is what actually happened. Then we have the oral stories as they're being passed down from person to person, memorized. And then we have written accounts of it, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But then we don't even have these original documents. We have copies of those and copies and copies and copies and copies of those. And then what's more, we have translations. So they are written in ancient Greek, but we're reading it in English or Spanish or whatever your translation of choice. And so... Uh, this is our actual situation. So when we think, do, does what we have in our Bible, which is right here, does it get back to what originally happened? Is it accurate? Is, do we actually have the words and the uh, actions of Jesus faithfully in our Bibles? Can we trust what's in our Bibles? 
When John 14, 26, Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. This means God himself was supervising the work of telling the Jesus story and recording it. And what we have in our Bibles comes from eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. And they have the Holy Spirit working in them to produce this faithful testimony. And as the copies were made of the written Gospels, errors and changes were bound to happen. Scholars call these copies of manuscripts. And we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, manuscripts, not including manuscripts in other languages. That's just the Greek manuscripts. Some of them are as small as only a part of a verse, and some of them are the whole New Testament. So that's what we have. We have over 5,000 copies, or pieces or full copies of the New Testament written in Greek. And it's remarkable that we have so many manuscripts that trace back uh, to sources written between 25 and 60 years after the event. There's, for example, Alexander the Great, I can't remember exactly, but the first written uh, writing we have about Alexander the Great is like three or 400 years after his death. That's the first one we have. But we talk about Alexander the Great, you know, in our history books, like this guy lived, and here's all these things we can say about him. But for the New Testament, it's only, I can't, I don't know how many manuscripts we have of Alexander the Great, but it's not many. Usually it's like, you get a, a couple or a dozen or something, and that's great. We have 5,000 of these copies of the New Testament. And what's amazing is that even with all these copies, there's hardly any difference. Most of the differences come from leaving a word out in copying, accidentally substituting one letter for another, like you're supposed to write an I, but you write an L, you know, that would be easy to, or to miss, see it, misread it, or using a synonym for a word. And scholars do the hard work of comparing the differences. I brought this here. I'm not going to talk about it. It's a Greek New Testament. You can look at it afterwards if you want. But it has the words here, the Greek words here. And then down here is all these little notes of where do we get those words from and what are, there, what are the differences. And there's all these little notes. And scholars do the hard work of comparing all of the different copies and manuscripts to get back to what did it say originally. And we get back to it with 97 to 99% accuracy. And in the end, no major Christian belief is affected by any of these passages where we might not know the exact word or the exact letter uh, of the original. There's no major Christian belief that's based on, oh, this passage, we have no idea what this said in the original. That's, not, that's just not how it works. There's 97 to 99% accuracy. And so what does this tell us? The fact that we have so many copies shows us that early believers cherish the story of Jesus and as Christianity spread, so did the copy, copies of Jesus' story. Because it's like every community, every church community needs one of these so they can learn and know the Jesus story for themselves. And the fact that it's been translated so many times shows us that Jesus is for all people. He's not just for one culture or one language. Like the Quran is not supposed to be translated. It's supposed to, the only thing that counts for it is, has to be in Arabic. That's, like, that's how it's supposed to be. But God didn't care about that. Jesus is for all people, no matter their language. And all these copies and translations tell us that the news about Jesus is meant to be spread. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Go make disciples of all nations, which didn't mean teach them all to, teach, to read Greek, but it was of all nations, every tribe, tongue, and language. It can go to all of them in a translation. And the news uh, from the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, the news rippled out through people and time and cultures and languages. And the early Christians wanted to get the word out, and they were careful about how they did it. They saw, they saw these documents as something worthy to be preserved. And so it, from this event, it just ripples you know, across the planet. Okay, some will say, 
So we have reliable copies. But all four Gospels are different. You can read the same story between them, and they have different details. When Jesus calmed the storm, do the disciples lack understanding because of hard hearts? Or do they worship him and call him the Son of God? And one skeptic is famous for saying, well, it depends on which Gospel you read. Does the centurion himself come to ask Jesus to heal his servant? Or does he send his friends to ask Jesus? It depends on which Gospel you read. Who did the women see at the empty tomb? A young man dressed in a white robe, like Mark says. One angel of clothing, white as snow, like Matthew says. Or two women in dazzling apparel, like Luke says. It depends on which gospel you read. And more differences could be pointed out, but this is a sample. And New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg has done a lot of work in validating the credibility and historical accuracy of the gospel. And here's his response to the uh, differences and the surface-level contradictions. They're not actually contradictions, they just seem like it. He says the largest group of these differences and contradictions simply reflects the natural variations in storytelling and writing that characterize most uh, partially independent counts of the same event. So they're partially independent of one event, and they're partially, as people are doing the oral stories and writing these Gospels, they're partially independent tellings because, you know, like we said, Mark, Mark was written first, and so... Luke probably used Mark as a source, and Matthew probably used Mark as a source. It's partially independent because they all are using similar sources, the same eyewitnesses, same apostles, and some of the written accounts. He keeps going. Uh, He says, uh, I'll reread it, the largest group simply reflects the natural variations in storytelling and writing that characterize most partially independent accounts of the same event, without calling into question the historicity of the event itself. Many involve inclusion or omission, of those details most relevant or irrelevant to a given gospel writer's purposes, particularly his theological emphases. Only rarely do these create dramatic differences between two parallels, but even then one can understand how both perspectives may remain true. And so if you were to ask Katie and I, um, well, how'd you guys meet? How'd you meet to get married? And we tell that story from memory, and... You, maybe one person would tell about several parts of it, and then have you ever listened to somebody, their engagement story, and then they're like, no, what was happening from your perspective? And you know, you, you either ask the guy or the girl, like, you know, the girl's like, oh, it just feels so great, or something, like, surprised me, and it just, like, overwhelmed me, and it was filled with love. And like, no, what was going, ask the guy, what was going on from your perspective? Oh, well, I was prepping, you know, for months, and, the, you know, that's not part of the girl's story. I was prepping for months, and I was really stressed about this. I didn't know if that would work out. And, you know, it's like different perspectives of the same event, and now if Kay and I were retelling the story of how we uh, met and got engaged and got married, there's often parts that she tells and parts that I tell. It's like you kind of switch off, like, oh, this is this is her part here. And we didn't even plan that out. It just happens. And depending on the occasion, we might leave parts out or we might give certain details. You know, we don't really have time to tell this here, or this person's really interested, so we're going to tell a whole bunch more. And Katie might remember include details that are important to her but aren't important to me. But even though there are two perspectives with differences, that doesn't make the event of us meeting and getting engaged and getting married any less true. It would be two different perspectives. And this is where, uh, this is why these four accounts of Jesus' life aren't called the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John. Each one is telling the same Gospel but from a different perspective, bringing out different parts of the story. And think about a major event that gets covered, uh, that would happen in our country, it gets covered on four different news channels. 
And you could tune into those, and they might order the event different how they're going to talk about it. They might be more in favor of the event or less in favor of the event. I mean, compare Fox News to CNN in their reporting on Trump, and it's like, okay, the same uh, events are happening, but different perspectives uh, depending on you know kind of their biases or their preferences. And you know, four different news channels uh, reporting on the same thing, and they would have the core of what happened would be the same, but they might say it differently. We have four Gospels doing that. When Katie and I were hiking Yosemite National Park um, a couple summers ago, one of the most prominent things in Yosemite National Park is this rock formation called Half Dome. It's like big, you can't miss it. And it was breathtaking and majestic, and we uh, planned to hike it several days into our trip. Um, but as we came to the park, it's like every other trail we went on, you could see Half Dome, this big thing just sticking up uh, you know, in the sky. It's huge. And so we would stop and oh, take a picture. And do you think that we took just one picture? You know, first time we saw it, took a picture. Okay, that's good. We got it. It's like as we would hike these other trails, it'd be like, oh, now we're seeing it from a different angle. Now we can see, you know, it's valuable odor. We can see this waterfall. Take another picture. Hike another trail. Oh, there it is again. And so we have these, all these pictures from different angles of Half Dome. And then when we hiked it, we took more pictures because now we're experiencing it like on top of it and right up close to it. And now that's a different perspective. And the person of Jesus Christ, like, you know, much more than a mountain like that, he's beautiful and breathtaking and majestic. And he leaves you in wonder and awe. And the early church saw no problem with having multiple versions of the story with multiple people telling it. They, they knew of the differences. I mean, they're not dummies. As they put this together, it's like, oh, there's a little difference there. It's like they probably they knew the Bible way better than you do, but they saw no problem with these differences between these accounts. But... Jesus is so big and beautiful and majestic and breathtaking that it takes multiple accounts to even try to capture who he is on paper. Each is giving a portrait of Jesus. Who was he? What's he about? So to whom and why did Luke write? To whom and why did Luke write? All this brings us to Luke's reasons for writing and the person he wrote too. Luke addresses both this gospel and Acts both the things he wrote, to a man named Theophilus. And Theophilus is probably the one funding the project. It's kind of like Luke has a little research grant, and he's getting funding from Theophilus to travel around and not work, and for his writing materials. Uh, And so Luke dedicates both of his works to Theophilus. If you looked in these two books I've right here, you'd see little dedications. I dedicated it to this person. I dedicated it to this person. So why does Luke write? Verses 3 and 4 say... It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke goes to the eyewitnesses and apostles to write an orderly account of what has been accomplished. Also, Theophilus and other believers may have certainty concerning what they've been taught about Jesus. Or to say it another way, so that they may know the truthfulness of what they've been taught. And so why would they why would they need that? Why do they need certainty what they've been taught about Jesus? The question for them isn't whether Jesus is real. Even non-Christian writers around the first and early second century uh, didn't have big gospel accounts, but they would mention Jesus and the basic portrait they give lines up, you know, in brief detail of what we see uh, in the gospel accounts. So it's not whether Jesus was real. For Theophilus and other followers of Jesus, the question is, 
is Jesus really who I've been taught that he is? Because there are other interpretations and perspectives on Jesus at the time. And we see in the Gospel accounts, most of Israel's religious leaders thought he was a fraud and called him a blasphemer, and then they put him to death. So that's one interpretation of Jesus. It's like, he's a fraud. This guy, he's claiming to be the Son of God. He can forgive people. He's going to die for our sins. Look, he's just a fraud. And then they want to get him out of the way, and they put him to death. Are they right? And non-Jewish Gentiles, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. So are they right? This is just a foolish story. This is, it sounds made up. This would never happen. What Theophilus has been taught is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. He is Israel's promised Messiah and the Lord and Savior of the world. So is that right? Others were saying no. So remember, it wasn't easy to be a follower of Jesus in the first century, and in many other centuries, and around the world now. There was a high cost to believing Jesus is your Lord and changing your life based on that belief. As a Jew, to follow Jesus as your Messiah, Lord, and Savior didn't mean you abandoned your God, but it meant leaving the religious system that's been set up uh, in Judaism, and that was in power, and that influenced the rest of your family and friends. So if you all of a sudden lose that, and leave that, it's like, what are you going to be to your friends and family and to other people around you? It's like, you're going to be an outcast. As a non-Jewish Gentile, you would abandon your gods, your religion, and the way you were living. And for both, it meant risking rejection by friends and family, persecution, and even death. So Luke is writing to people asking, is this worth it? Is following Jesus worth the cost? Is he worth changing your life for, losing your relationships over, and possibly being killed if what they've been taught is true, then it's all worth it. And Luke's goal is to assure them of this, uh, that Jesus is worth it because the good news is true news. He wants to tell them that. The good news you've been taught is true news. Jesus is worth it because the good news is true news. And the question for each of us today that we need to ask too, is Jesus worth it? One of our issues is that Christianity is normal in our country. So it doesn't take much to call yourself a Christian. We call ourselves Christians without it costing us much of anything. And the easy road of saying, I'm a Christian, is that it costs you a few hours on Sunday and a few bucks at the offering, or if you're involved with something else, a few more hours throughout the week. But you know, it just costs me a few hours and a few dollars. And the dollars are really optional. And so if it's costing us that, what do we do in the other 166 hours of the week? You know, two hours on a Sunday... 160 hours, 8 hours in the week, and it's like, well, the other 166 hours, uh, we do what we want. We spend our time just like everyone else, and our money just like everyone else. That's what we can do. We can say, I'm a Christian, and just give Jesus two hours a week or a couple dollars, and live the rest of our life how we want. But for the first follower of Jesus, of Jesus to call themselves a Christian, just to take that name meant that it was, their whole life changed, and it came with challenges and hatred and hostility. And we, too, have other interpretations of Jesus today. Some people think he was a great teacher or a great example and nothing more. It's like, you know, he just taught some great stuff, and man, he was a loving guy, and people just love that picture of him. Like, you know, why don't you just not, why don't you just love everyone like Jesus did? And there's no you know, thoughts about his death or his resurrection and the fact that, you know, we're, uh, we're God's enemies and need to turn to him. Some people think he's just a legend or is a great man, and what we have in the Bible isn't historically accurate, you know? There was Jesus, the events of his life, and he was just an ordinary teacher, a nice guy. And then things just kind of got out of hand, and it got embellished over time, and got, he just got bigger than he actually is. 
And some people think Jesus basically taught what other great teachers taught, like Buddha or Muhammad. You know, all the religions are the same. It's just, you know, love people and treat people how you want to be treated. And that's what Jesus taught too. And so, you know, people just kind of put him in a category where it's like, I don't need to wrestle with what he said. I already know what he said. He said the same thing as everyone else. And many people don't believe Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords who died to save us from ourselves, our sin, our selfishness, our denial that we need God. And so what kind of life change uh, happens when we believe that? If we believe that he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it requires more than a few hours or more than a few dollars on Sundays. If Jesus is our Lord and we're going to follow him, that means a whole life commitment. It means that the way we live and what we value is going to stick out from the crowd. It means we're going to swim against the, the current of how where the rest of the world and culture is flowing and where our coworkers and family and friends and neighbors of what they do. It means we're going to stick out from them. And so think about these questions. Does your life only make sense if Jesus is really the Lord and Savior of the world? Does your life only make sense if Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. You know, it's kind of like, you're like living a way that's completely different from the world. And uh, if people are like, what? Why are you? When they look at your life, they ask, what are you doing? Why are you living that way? It doesn't make sense to me. If they're, if Jesus isn't the Lord and their Lord and Savior, and they look at your life, it should be like, that looks way different than my life. When people look at your life, do they see you're living with someone else on the throne? Or is it you on the throne most of the time? Does your life require a gospel explanation? Does your life require a gospel explanation? If someone asked you, why are you doing that? Why are you living that way? Your answer would take them to the gospel. Well, I believe Jesus is my king, and he loved me and died for me. And that changes everything. It's like, why, why are you doing that? You're, the gospel is the only way that you can explain why you're living the way you are. And does your life look radically different from those who don't believe? Or would people be surprised to find out you're a Christian? Oh, I'm a Christian. Really? Wow. I wouldn't have thought that by the way you treat other people or by the way you work or how you spend your time. Like, you just kind of look, you just seem normal like me. In a certain sense, we don't have to be, you know, like, super weirdos. But it's like there should be things different about our life that makes us stand out. And living that way can be costly. To, to do what Jesus asks us to do might mean discomfort, ridicule, rejection, and hatred. And there's an opportunity cost because saying yes to Jesus means we're saying no to other things that the rest of the world is doing and values and says should be a priority. It means spending our money and our time differently. It means our life is being poured out for someone else. And so why would we do it? Why would we live that way? Why would we have you know, discomfort and rejection and ridicule and maybe have people hate us? And why would we you know, give money uh, to people who are struggling and hurting or why would we be generous? Why wouldn't we just live for ourselves? Why would we do any of that? Is it worth it? You know, it's like, wow, there's a lot of costs here. A lot of costs to following Jesus. But what makes it worth it? And do you believe Jesus is worth it? Do we believe he's worth it? We go all in on something despite the cost because we are certain of the benefits. It's, you know, maybe you'd be like, you know, I'm going to put all my money in this stock, in the stock market, because I'm just certain you know, that it's going to do well. And it's like we do some, we go all in on something because we're certain of the benefits. And if we're holding back from Jesus, it may be because we're, we're, hol- we're holding on to the benefits that we think this world offers. The benefits of the world seem greater and cost much less 
than following Jesus. Because we get the benefits of the world, gives us comfort, acceptance by others. We have more money and time for ourselves. And so it's like, wow, there's a lot of benefits there. It doesn't cost me anything because that's just how everyone else is living. So it's pretty easy. But Jesus asked us, what does it profit a man or woman if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his life or himself? If you're holding back from Jesus, it may be because you lack certainty, you're fully convinced that he's the best thing to ever happen to you, that his ways are the best way, that without him you have no real hope, that he is the Lord and Savior of the world. That's for all of us. Like, is there any ways we're holding back? Are we living with certainty? Are you holding back? And Luke's goal is to give us certainty that Jesus is the real deal. He is who he said he was. He changed everything. He's worth living for. He's like he's worth dying for. He's like giving up your life for. Because the benefits far outweigh the cost. And so he's worth it. Luke wants to show us that Jesus is worth it because the good news is true news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gospel account that tells us about your son's life, what he did, what he taught, what it means to follow him. Would you help it be planted deep into our hearts as we go through it? Would you give us certainty about what we've been talking about this morning and by your spirit that the good news is true news? In the son's name we pray. Amen.